I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13. God's good providence to us as a congregation, he's led us to consider the church at Antioch. We've taken uh, the last two Sunday mornings to consider different characteristics or aspects of this church that are worthy of emulation. The way I'd summarize the church, God used this church in the first century to change the world. And I think it would be good for us to consider uh, what we might learn. So we come to this text this morning with anticipation and eagerness about how Luke will describe this church. So far, I've summarized the lessons we can learn from this church in the following five ways. I said they were a church uh, in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, that was energized by the faithfulness of common brothers and sisters in Christ. If you remember how the church at Antioch even began, certain men came uh, from uh, Cyrene and Cyprus, and they preached the gospel, and the church was formed. Many disciples were added. We don't even know the names of these individuals, but they were faithful, and they proclaimed uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the church was started. They were also blessed by the presence and power of God. Look in chapter 11 for just a moment in verse 20, just to remind you as a congregation what we should be longing for. Uh, actually, verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A church that changes the world is blessed by the presence and the power of God. And so for the last three weeks, we've been asking, God, would you put your good hand on us or with us, not against us as we strive to serve you. There were churches as well that was led by the ministry of godly leaders. Uh, in the very next verses in chapter 11, uh, Paul, uh, Luke describes Barnabas like this. He says he was a good man filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we said that this is not only an, a mark of leaders in churches that change the world, but of members who are controlled by the Spirit of God and controlled by faith, not doubt and questioning of God's existence in this world. This was a church at the end of chapter 11 that paid close attention to the text together, to the scriptures together. Remember, Barnabas left Antioch, and he went, he found, through diligent search, he found Saul of Tarsus, and he brought him in, and when Saul comes, he teaches them for a year in a row. For a whole year, he opens up the Word, and he teaches these new believers from the Old Testament Scriptures. They're a church that loved studying the text of Scripture together, and then in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 30, they're a church that supported God's work in locations outside of their own city. They heard that there was a famine that was going to impact the world, especially Jerusalem. And so they give generously out of their abundance to help this church. Uh, today, in chapters 13 and 14, we're going to take a look at both chapters, and we're going to see a sixth characteristic of a church that changes the world. A sixth characteristic. This one final distinguishing mark is that this church had a culture of missions and evangelism. Culture of missions and evangelism. Now, to fully grasp it, uh, this concept and what this church emphasized, we'll consider all of chapters 13 and 14. Now, 
we can't look at it in close detail, or we would be here for like a very long time, okay? But what we will do is we will look especially at the parts of chapters 13 and 14 that take place in the city of Antioch, okay, with the church at Antioch. We'll survey the other sections, but we'll, we'll really drill down into these two sections that take place in Antioch. And I, I think all of chapters 13 and 14 are to be understood as one narrative, one grand narrative. You can see that at the beginning and the end. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Text says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. Now go to the end of chapter 14. The end of chapter 14, look with me at verses 26 through 28. Acts 14, 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." There's several phrases or concepts repeated at the beginning of chapter 13, the end of chapter 14. For instance, this is a church that's at Antioch. This is where it's, it's, it's occurring. This is the location in both the end and the beginning. This is a church that was gathered together in an assembly worshiping. This is a church in both texts. It says it describes mission as the work that God had called them to do. So at the beginning and end. So I think Luke desires us to see chapters 13 and 14 as one grand narrative with a lofty message. The message is a message about missionary work. It's a message that most scholars would describe as Paul's first missionary journey. That's what you got in Acts 13 and 14. Paul's first missionary journey where this mission team moves the gospel forward in an earnest way to the ends of the earth. And so to gain greater appreciation for what's going on in these verses, I want to look at this grand narrative by uh, examining three points with you. I've organized it around three points. Verses one through three um, are about preparing for mission. So go back to chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, point 1, preparing for mission. In these verses, we get a glimpse, I think, of the genuine nature of the church at Antioch. This was a thriving church. We get just a small little glimpse at what they did when they worshipped and they gathered together. This is a church, men and women, that was not built on programs, but built on prayer, fasting, worship, and the ministry of the Spirit of God. And there's a lot that Colonial Baptist Church can learn from the way they prepared for mission. I want to draw out a few emphases, emphases from verses 1 through 3 here. First, this church was prepared in that they had gifted solid leadership. 
Well, you can say it if you read verse 1 with me again. Uh, now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I would say, uh, if I describe the gifted, solid leadership of this church, I mean, this church was stacked with gifted prophets and teachers, including not only Saul and Barnabas, and we, we know a little bit about them. We're going to learn more about them. You can learn more about them in Acts. Uh, two of the most gifted prophets and teachers and leaders in the early church. But there are three other men that are listed here. We don't know much about the other men. I could give you just a little bit of information about each one of them. Simeon, uh, that's described here, his, he was called Niger. Uh, so Simeon was likely a black man uh, who was gifted in teaching and prophecy. The word Niger is a Latinism, meaning black. And so this clearly implies that Simeon's complexion was darker than most of the Syrians in Antioch. He was, uh, he was a black man, but he was, he was a man who loved the word. He was a teacher and prophet. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, what we know about him is he's from Africa. Perhaps, maybe. It just could be that this is one of the founders of the church. We don't know for sure. But if you remember, men from Cyprus and Cyrene come to plant the church. Maybe Lucius is one of those men who have faith and come and sow the words of the gospel. What we do know is he's either a gifted teacher or prophet. And then Manaen, a lifelong friend, the text says, of Herod. And I think that Herod here is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who ruled Galilee, a fourth part of the Roman Empire, during the life of Jesus. This is the Herod that killed John the Baptist, that had him beheaded. Well, regardless, in this man's early life, he was a man who knew this person. Meaning, I think this, this Manian was likely a person of some means before he came to know Jesus Christ. The most notable feature of their leadership that I would bring to you is its breadth and its depth. I said before, stacked, right? Stacked teachers and prophets. Undoubtedly, also, there was great diversity in their leadership. But then notice when God acts through the Spirit in verses 2 and 3. Notice when he acts. It was when they were corporately fasting and worshiping God in community. I'm struck with the way Luke describes this in verse 2. Okay, so look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now I have a few questions about this passage, and maybe I'll never get the answers to some of them. But a few things really grabbed my attention or, or caused me to be intrigued this week. I, I first wondered, why were they worshiping together on this occasion? Why? It may simply be that they're following after the pattern laid out in Acts. To this point, we know that followers of Jesus Christ, believers, were, they would meet regularly or daily to continue in the apostles' teaching, prayer, worship, giving, uh, or, or taking in of bread. So they met regularly, and it may just be that, that they're demonstrating that same type of faithful commitment to corporate worship. But is there more on this occasion? Why were they worshiping, the text says, and fasting? I read through that, I was just thinking, you know, fasting is not normative 
I don't believe, for new covenant believers today. Uh, not normative. I do believe that believers should fast from time to time. And, and I preached a sermon in Mark a long time ago, Mark chapter 2, and you could go back to that sermon, you could read my perspectives on fasting. But for instance, in the entire book of Acts, we only find two other places where people are fasting. That's why I say it's not normative for the early church. I think something unique is going on here in this gathering. They're worshiping and fasting together. The only other places it's found is in verse 3. We're going to see it in just a second. And then in chapter 14, verse 23, when, when they are seeking after new leaders in or for the church there in Acts 14, 23. Again, I do think that there are times when we should fast both Jesus and Paul fasted from time to time in their lives, and there are passages where they call us to fast, but to me it seems likely in this passage that the church of Antioch was specifically requesting for God to leave, lead them and move them in an important direction. Okay, and this is where I, I want to lay out to you my theory. I think perhaps the church was burdened by the need of the Gentile world around them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what did they do? They gathered together, worshipped, and fasted to declare their absolute dependence on God to do something about the need of Gentiles to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, I think their fasting here gives uh, evidence of their urgent desire to see God do something in and through their church. So as we learn from this vibrant church in the first century, we should strongly consider that a church that changes the world is one that gets together often, worshiping, praying, fasting together so that God would do something. But then finally notice in the middle part of verse 2 and into verse 3, that they were willing to obey even if it was costly. Look at the end of middle of verse, verse 2. It says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what's, what's happened here, the, the church is worshiping together and the Spirit moves I think in, in an unusual way. Likely, I think the Spirit gave one of their teachers or prophets a word of prophecy saying that Barnabas and Saul had been selected by God to do, and you notice how the Spirit describes the work of missionary labor? Not to do missions, but to do work for the work wherein I have called them. It means that this would be something rigorous, self-denying, Christ-exalting. It would be work, though. And then notice in verse 3 the response of the church. So the Spirit leads one of the prophets, I think, to give this prophetic utterance. Barnabas and Saul, I've selected to do the work of mission. And then the text says, Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Four things they do here, all in response to the work of God. It says, uh, they put their mind to fasting and praying again. The way I interpret this, this is another round of fasting and praying. So, that, I mean, they had been worshiping and fasting for God to do something. God leads a prophet to give this prophetic utterance. 
Then they pray and fast again. No doubt this time interceding for this upcoming ministry trip. Not only prayed and fasted, the text says they laid their hands on the men, probably a commissioning of sorts. We do this from time to time at Colonial Baptist Church. Following examples like this, one of our own goes out to the mission, and so we bring them in front of the assembly, and we lay our hands on them to commission them for the work that they've been called. And then the text says they sent them off. They sent them off. I don't want you to lose sight of the importance of this. These, are just, these seem to be like three normal verses, right? Three quick verses. Matter of fact, you're probably shocked I said so much about them. However, this is a very important moment for the church, for this is the first example of planned overseas missions. This is the first time that I could find in my text of Scripture where you have a church getting together, planning out overseas missionary work. You see, Antioch was the first church to catch the vision of foreign missionary service. And God will use it in profound ways. Now, from a human perspective, I think this was probably a difficult sacrifice for the church at Antioch. The two that God chose were their two apostles, likely their only two apostles, Barnabas and Saul. They were not only apostles, they were gifted prophets and teachers. I'm sure it was not easy for this church to see two of their most gifted brothers leave. But what a noble example for us. As I said before, this was a church stacked. God had given them many gifted preachers and teachers, but to whom much is given, much more will be required. So I went through this text and, 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 and considered these five men and two being sent and three remaining. I couldn't help but think of the way, many ways God has gifted us as a church with godly leadership. One of the things that came to my mind is our seminary. You know, I've been involved in smaller and rural churches across the world where I've tried to help them, especially ones in the States here, find one person, one man who is trained and called by God to be a preacher or teacher. And you know what? I've actually had some situations where I tried to help the church find one person. They didn't have one person who could teach and preach. In some cases where the church actually ended up shutting down because they couldn't find one. They searched and they searched and they prayed and they prayed, yet they could not find one. But here, God has been so good to us at Colonial Baptist Church. In some ways, I say this very humbly, right? Because this is a work of God in his grace. In some ways, we are stacked too. So it shouldn't surprise us if God is continually taking some of our teachers and pastors, some of our families to go away, right? To go to places that also need the light of Jesus Christ. And our heart at those moments should be one of willful sacrifice. Willful sacrifice. I mean, I, I think it should hurt us when families of our church go away to other places where the gospel is not yet known. But it's a joyful sorrow, isn't it? It's thought of what our church went through just recently in sending Wesley Davey over to Pakistan. I mean, that, 
that young man is a gifted teacher of Scripture. There's a part of me, as a pastor, I'm thinking carnally here. I just love to keep him. Right? He's the sort of teacher I love to keep engaged in teaching and, and sharing the gospel with Colonial Baptist Church. But that was not God's plan. It was not God's plan. And while it was sorrowful, and you know, we had a great time in the home of John and Marla Coates saying goodbye to Wesley, and there were tears shed, and people, there were hugs and prayers. While it was sorrowful, it was joyful. Because we knew what God was doing. He was taking one of our gifted teachers and he was sending them across the world to a place where people need to hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, the church at Antioch was preparing for mission. They were worshiping and fasting together when the Holy Spirit did something. And so then they, they, they sent Paul and Barnabas away. Uh, now, the second main point, and this is where we're going we're gonna to make up some time. And if you're thinking all of chapters 13 and 14... Pastor's only got a few minutes left, and we're through three verses. Well, verses 4 through chapter 14, verse 25, is really the meat of the missionary journey. Here, my second point, they were preparing for mission, that's number one. Number two, engaging in mission, chapter 13, verse 4 through 14, 25. Now, what I'd encourage you to do this week is read through this text of Scripture to see what you can learn about how to engage in mission. God gave me a thought as I was reading through this. I knew I couldn't go through the whole thing, but what I did is I read it over and over and over again, and I looked for verbs. I looked for things that Paul and Barnabas did on their first missionary journey, because this is an amazing journey that changes the world for the gospel of Christ. And so I, in my Bible, I underlined every verb, everything Paul and Barnabas did, because I wanted to learn about engaging in mission. I'd encourage you to do the same. The way I'd summarize these verses, these chapters, is that uh, Paul and Barnabas go on this missionary journey, and they do work primarily in six cities. I want to show you some of the verbs that I found in six cities. First, they're in Cyprus. Look in verse, verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, those are verbs. But when they arrived at Salamis, this was the first one that grabbed my attention. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John. That's John Mark to assist them. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark proclaim the word of God in Cyprus. Later on in verses 9 and 10, they confront a magician who's preventing a ruler from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They confront him, he is condemned, and then this ruler accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. So in this first city, they come to this island, really, Cyprus. Uh, They proclaim the word of the Lord, and people are converted. Uh, then just after that, in Pisidian Antioch, the verbs that I underlined, uh, the mission they engage in, they stand up, the text says, and they preach Jesus in the synagogue, verses 16 through 41. Later on in the text, we learn that they speak out boldly against some Jew- jealous Jews who were trying to shut the whole thing down. It says they're in Pisidian Antioch. Things are going pretty well. They meet on one Sabbath day, and and there's a big hearing. The next Sabbath day, some Jews get disgusted that Paul and Barnabas have such a large hearing, so they try to shut it down. So Paul and Barnabas confront them. They speak boldly against them and end up shaking off the dust from their feet when they leave the city. The third city is, is called Iconium. 
Here the verbs are this, they enter the synagogue, they speak Jesus. They remain there despite opposition so that they can speak boldly for a while longer before they're forced to flee away from Iconium. The fourth city is a, a place called Lystra, chapter 14, verses, uh, starts in verse 8. In this place, they heal a crippled man, verses 8 through 10, which draws the admiration of the city. You remember, they want to make gods out of Barnabas and Saul. They want to proclaim them like that. Saul and Barnabas managed to deflect their praise and worship. That's probably a good idea because of what happened in Acts chapter 12 with Herod. You could read it on your own. But they deflect the praise and worship of these people for themselves But then just after that, just after that high moment, what happens to Paul and Barnabas in the city? They are stoned and drug away out of the city. Verse 19. Look at me at verse 20. Look at verse 20, chapter 14, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he, that's Paul, he was the one stoned, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I'm considering their mission labor here. Uh, They go further to Derby, and in Derby, we could read that they preach the gospel. They make many disciples, 1421, before returning to Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch to encourage believers there. And after doing that, they go to their sixth city, a place called Perga, and the only verb that's used to describe them there, 1425, is that they spoke the Word of God again. As a matter of fact, when I went through this and I thought, you know, I want to learn from the missionary activity of Paul and Barnabas, one of the things that hit me was it's actually quite simple. You know what they did? They went city after city, six cities, six churches were planted, and they went into the city and they spoke or they spoke boldly or they preached Jesus. And God did amazing things. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses for evangelism in my own heart. One I always go to. I, I, was, I was meditating upon it this morning before I came up here. It's 2 Corinthians 4.13. 2 Corinthians 4.13. In that text, Paul the Apostle is asked why or how he is able to be so bold in his witness for Jesus Christ. And his answer is to quote a psalm. The psalm is very simple. The psalm says... Uh, is the psalmist, and he says, I believed, therefore I spoke. So Paul says, uh, just like the psalmist says, I believe, therefore I spoke, Paul says, we believe, therefore we speak. As we consider engaging in mission, it's as simple as that, opening up your mouth, proclaiming Jesus Christ. So despite hardships and difficulties and opposition, Saul and Barnabas engaged in mission in six cities. At least six churches are planted on this missionary journey. The journey took 1,400 miles by land and sea, probably only took about two years, but God did some amazing things. I stop for a moment in point of application. I ask you, what could God do here in two years? What could he do through us? If we engaged in mission for two years, if we opened our mouths and spoke boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, God is still powerful to say. 
I think our greatest obstacles for evangelism is our own lack of faithfulness, our own unwillingness to stand up, to speak Jesus, to speak out boldly, to rise up, to go further, to preach the gospel, and to make many disciples as Paul did in these verses. But God can overcome even this, and he can light a fire in our soul and open our mouths for the glory of his name. God can do that at Colonial Baptist Church. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. He can give to good old established Colonial the heart of a pioneer missionary ministry where its members have a church planter's mentality in their neighborhoods and at their workplaces. A heart not settled into a a maintenance mentality, but one that bursts forward with a missions mentality. One that sees row upon row of houses, person upon person, just read an analysis of our assembly within three miles of this, this building that you sit in right here. There are over 11,000 children, ages 4 to 12. 11,000. A church that prays fervently that God would do something to use them to reach young people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can give us an attitude that scrapes and claws its way forward to take the good news to our neighbor and the nations. I can give you here is my perspective. My perspective on us through prayer is that we need God to produce a culture of mission and evangelism at Colonial Baptist Church. A culture where we love to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love to talk to each other about it culture where we aggressively plan to reach out and give much for mission. Not where we have like this little missions budget that we just you know, put over here, put a few pennies over here, put a few dollars over here, but actually a missions budget that makes us all uncomfortable. It's like, well, that, okay. Now that is like, that's really aggressive. Great. Right? God would give us a heart for mission. I think we better be prepared for a mission because God's already doing some things at Colonial Baptist Church that I would rejoice in. I already know of like two or three of our own members who are making plans to go to mission fields. So, guess what, Colonial? You better be ready. You better be ready to help pay for that. Be ready and be excited about what God is doing there. And we have a plan to suggest that not just a few of us will occasionally go overseas or across the country, but that many of us would. That sort of mentality. And so I want to close by looking at verses 26 through 28 and look at our third point. They prepared for mission. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, they engaged in mission, 13, 14, 13, 4 through 14, 25, but then they also Number three, reported on mission. 
verses 26 through 28. Let's read these verses one last time. It says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had, had fulfilled. And, they arrived, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Here, Paul and Barnabas give the first missionary report ever given, and I don't think they had PowerPoint or slides. If they did, those would be some really cool slides. Okay, imagine them telling the story of uh, the Jews that tracked them down from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and chased them to Lystra and stoned them. Okay. Slide of Pisidian Antioch. See those angry Jews back at the back of that slide there? The ones that drove us out of the city. Now, now look at this slide of, of, uh, Ant- of, of uh, Iconium. See that guy in the back? Same guy. Same guy. And then, okay, I'm going to click forward. Or one more to Lystra. See that guy with the stone in his hand? See that guy? Same guy. Paul was hunted. He was tracked down by some of the same Jews. They dragged him away. They stoned him. He'd have much to report on. But I want you to, sh- to see what Luke emphasizes about the report. We don't know much about it. But Luke, the biblical author inspired by the Spirit, does record a few things. First, Luke's account emphasizes how this church had previously committed these believers to God. We see this in verse 26. It says there in the text, that they had been commended to the grace of God. That phrase is not obvious. You know, so what does it mean? I think what it means, you can figure out what it means when you flip back to chapter 13 and you think about what they actually did. Okay, so you go back to chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and the way that they had commended them to the grace of God was they prayed and fasted and laid their hands on them. Okay, so what does it mean, Pastor Brent, to be commended to the grace of God? What does it mean to commend someone to the grace of God? It means that you pray and you fast and you lay your hands to send them away. Okay, now the word commended is helpful too. It could be translated, they had committed. They committed these men to God's care. They handed them over to God's care through their initial prayer and fasting and laying on of hands. Okay, but then we get the report, and the report is twofold, and it emphasizes God. Look, look back at chapter 14, verse 27. When they arrived, gathered the whole church together, they declared two things. Look in your Bible, two things. All that God had done with them, not all that they had done on the missionary journeys, but all that God did. That was the first part of it. As a matter of fact, that's something they're going to get in the habit of doing. Look down in chapter 15, verse 4. When they're in the Jerusalem council, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Same exact phrase. Paul and Barnabas are getting in the habit now of declaring all that God does with them or did with them on the missionary journey. But then the second part of this report, go back to verse 27 again. They declared all that God had done with them. That's number one. And how he, that's God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. As I was reading through this text, thinking through this passage, I thank God for allowing us to end in this way as we consider the church at Antioch. Here Paul and Barnabas give glory to God. They talk about everything that God did in taking the gospel to these six cities. And when they expressed it to others, they used a metaphor. 
They use the metaphor of God opening a door. This will become for Paul the Apostle a very common expression that he will use over and over again. He uses it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He used it in Colossians, a text that we already read about today, of God opening a door, providing an opening. So Paul and Barnabas, when they give this report, they say that this door, this way, is now ajar. This means that God did not just give them an opportunity or possibility for evangelism with Gentiles. I think it's speaking of something new that God did with them. He opened a door, the text says, of faith to the Gentiles. A door which leads to faith in the Gentiles was now wide open because of what God did with this church. And might I say that God can open doors for us as well. Use a little phrase that's been on my mind a little bit throughout the course of the sermon. Maintenance mode, maintenance mentality. Well, I'll just say this about God. God, God's not ever only on maintenance mode. No, he is in the business of opening doors for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so may God do for us what he did for the church at Antioch what he did later for the church of Revelation, or the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, when God says to that church, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. No one is able to shut. Perhaps God in his goodness to us at Colonial Baptist Church will open up a door the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ will go with us these next few years as we attempt to take his name to neighbor and nation. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for this report, Acts 13 and 14. Two chapters, one word written over the top of them, mission. Father, as we turn our attention to uh, characteristics of this church at Antioch, uh, we just delight that they were a church that was the first to respond to uh, the call to foreign missionary service. I thank you, Lord, that uh, they were in the practice of worshiping, and they were fasting, and, and then you moved them. You identified missionaries, and they, they prayed, and they fasted for them, and they laid their hands on them, and they sent them out. Father, I pray that Colonial Baptist Church in our next uh, many years of existence until you return would be a church that is constantly identifying its uh, members who should go into missionary service. I pray that we'd be preparing them and that I, I pray as well that the rest of us would be engaged in mission and evangelism in our own area. And Lord, I pray that you would receive all the honor and glory. We delight in you, Father. We need you to work in our church. I think it's quite possible that there are people here who used to have a fire, used to be willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ 
to neighbor, to workplace, in public spots, in opportunities with people they come in contact with. I think it's quite possible that we have some in our assembly that used to have a fire for that, but just don't. And they feel little remorse about that. Father, I thank you for how you've used this text in my own heart, and I pray that uh, as a pastor of this church, I would lead the way. Be involved in the next several years for mission in Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, and beyond. Lord, might it not be said of Colonial Baptist Church, I know you. I know your works. You were a church that loved the text of Scripture, that loved to gather for Bible studies on Sundays, perhaps even throughout the week in homes. But I have one thing against you. You did not normally share the good news of my son to your neighbor. May that not be true of us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our church, enable us to just open our mouths and speak boldly, preach Jesus like these men. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.